We are in 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter. And uh, finishing up, I believe this is the last chapter in 1 Kings. Uh, so, kind of getting ready to wrap this up, reading some very interesting things. We are, uh, as, as we were reading through Kings, it goes very fastly, you know, a paragraph on one king, a paragraph on another king, one after another, one after another, and then it gets to uh, uh, the time of um, uh, Ahab, King Ahab, and particularly because of uh, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, which is going to be taking over as we get into Second Kings, both amazing prophets. And uh, so, anyway, we are now um, in, in verse uh, chapter 22. What had just happened is uh, um, Elijah had spoken a, a prophecy over uh, Ahab because of his wickedness that uh, he was going to be going to die. But uh, he humbled himself before God, and God decided not to bring this on him, but would bring it on his sons after his death. We talked about that. I don't know if you guys at the campuses had a good conversation about that, but uh, it was kind of interesting here on why God would do that. Real interesting stuff. Anyway, so we pick it up. Final chapter, 22. Now, for three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. You have to remember, this is a time, uh, uh, at this time, 4,000 whatever years ago, war was extremely common. These guys were constantly battling for each other. Uh, territory, land would go back and forth, exchange hands all the time. This is uh, a long time ago. Earth used to be incredibly, an incredibly violent place to to live. What changed a lot of, even though we still had wars and there's been some horrible wars uh, after uh, the arrival of, of Jesus, the Messiah, um, things seem to uh, change certainly in modern history. So it's not quite as insane as it used to be. But it used to be just the regular. Everybody was constantly going to war with each other. So it was a big deal that these guys went for three years between these two not having war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. So kind of a time of getting along between the two. Remember, you have the split kingdom, uh, which was really most of the history in Israel. It was a very short period of time under King David and under his son Solomon, the both the southern part of Israel and the northern part of Israel were joined together, kind of like our north and south uh, had problems. Uh, but after Solomon died, then it split again, and you've got Israel, which is the top ten uh, tribes, and then you've got Judah, very large tribe, pretty much dominated the south and also included, uh, who was the other tribe? Benjamin, thank you very much, the itty-bitty Benjamin tribe. So uh, anyway, they get together, and uh, the king of Israel had said to his officials, don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from King Aram? So it's kind of bugging him. Last standoff, they've got uh, their property, we've got to do something about this. So he asked Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of Judah, uh, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Now both Judah and Israel had its problems. Israel seemed to be in a much worse state in terms of their wickedness. Um, they were the first ones God brought real heavy judgment on and and then also eventually to uh, Judah. But uh, so he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against this guy? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. In other words, we're brothers. We're, we're Jews. We're all on the same side, at least during this period of time. Short as it may be, they're kind of getting along. But Jehoshaphat said uh, to the king of Israel, well, first seek, seek the counsel of the Lord. Again, 
uh, Judah being a little bit more spiritually minded uh, seemed to do better, fare well, better in terms of uh, uh, in response to the Lord than Israel. Israel was so caught up in, in uh, um, idols and stuff. And again, Judah's marginally better. They still had their, their problems. But Jehoshaphat was a pretty good guy. So he says, well, first thing, before we do this, let's, let's, let's inquire of the Lord. Well, so the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men. Now, we don't know what kind of prophets these guys were. Uh, because we'll see in a minute here that Jehoshaphat notices that they're not really prophets of Jehovah. So I don't know if these were, I don't know what kind of prophets they were. I mean, a lot of stuff, you've got to kind of read between the lines. We don't really know. Were they, you know, prophets of Baal or, the, of, or whatever? We don't know. But anyway, just the prophets. And they got together. And uh, uh, shall, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Well, then they prophesied. Go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Well, the Lord. Um, Zoom, they're talking about Jehovah God. Again, it's all kind of uh, confusing. There's, there's par- portions of the uh, Old Testament here between uh, the, the prophets where it's, it's hard to understand what they were seeing or what they were saying. It's, it's all rather confusing. Uh, uh, who is that one prophet uh, that they were trying to pay to speak judgment against Israel and the, and the donkey had to talk to him? What was his name? What was the name? Balaam. Yes, Balaam the prophet. Talking donkey. That would freak me out. But anyway, uh, he was really a false prophet, but yet he heard from God. And he's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, sometimes it's kind of hard to really understand where the lines were. It's all kind of blurred back in those days. So I don't quite get it. But anyway, these prophets say, yes, God will be with you. The Lord's going to be with you and you're going to succeed. But Jehoshaphat said, now he's the one who noticed. He says, well, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? In other words, that's, these are your prophets that are prophesying that the Lord will give us victory. But what about one of the prophets of the Lord? Again, he saw the distinction. I don't get it all. It's all kind of confusing to me. But clearly there was a distinction between these prophets and one that was really considered a prophet of the Lord like Elijah or one of these guys, okay? Well, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, well, there's still one man whom we inquire can, can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him <laughs> because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's son, he is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Well, it's interesting. He didn't mention Elijah because Elijah's still around. Okay, Elijah had been prophesying against him repeatedly. Uh, but apparently, he, you know, forget Elijah. We don't even want to get him. But, but there's this one guy, but I hate him too. And he never says anything good about me. Well, the Jehoshaphat said, listen, you really shouldn't say that. Okay, if he's a prophet of the Lord, let's hear what he's got to say. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, well, bring Micaiah, son of Imla, at once. Well, dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones and threshing hope floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now, Zedekiah, son of Canaan, had made iron horns and he declared, this is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Aramanians until they are destroyed. And all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth, Gilead, and be victorious for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. So these prophets are rather dramatic. They were, their kings are saying, they come forward and they prophesy. This guy brings these orange horns, these ram horns, and you will, you will gore the enemy. God's going to be with you. And these guys were very confident in their prophesying to the kings about the Lord's will. Again, kind of blurry. I don't quite get it. So, uh, so anyway, uh, the messenger, at verse 13, the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said uh, to him, 
look, as one man, the other's prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. So the, the messenger who goes to get this prophet of the Lord says, look, everybody's, everybody that says it's going to go good. You really need to tell them everything's going to go good. Okay? But the prophet says, well, as surely as the Lord lives, I can only tell him what the Lord tells me. Uh, which is interesting because the first thing he says here is not what the Lord tells him. Apparently he does it very sarcastically, so they knew it wasn't really the Lord, as we will see. So when he arrives, the kings ask them, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And then he answered, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. Which is what everybody had been saying. And he said he wouldn't say that unless God told him to say it. So one has to assume he's being sarcastic here because uh, the king rebukes him. So while it reads, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into, your, into the king's hand, it had to be more sarcastic. What shall I do? Attack and be victorious. He's probably making fun of the prophets who had been standing there saying, do this. Oh, yeah, attack and be victorious, for we'll give it into the Lord's hands. All right, well, right away, the king knew he was full of baloney. And the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he knew he was lying to him. So apparently this had to be a real smart aleck prophet. Somebody, I love these prophets. They're in people's faces all the time. So then Micaiah says, okay. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Well, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me? I hate this guy. And then the prophet continues. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. And then kind of an interesting look into eternal workings in the presence of God. Uh, He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? So God is basically bringing judgment now on Ahab at this point. Even though um, he had uh, turned his mercy on him, uh, you know, because of his repentance. I mean, these guys wouldn't stop. And again, we talked about this last week, how God is unbelievably merciful to these guys and reaching out to him. Well, at this point, God had finally had it. He's going to kill the guy. And he's sitting around heaven and says, okay, guys, we got to trick Ahab into going into this battle because this is what this is what's going to kill him. And God basically says, uh, who's going to do this? How are we going to pull this off? Now, what's really fascinating, I think you heard my brother Eddie preach on this verse of scripture a few months ago when he was here. Interesting insight on how, how God operates. Because we often view God in terms of God just sits and just tells everybody what to do. Okay, that he's up in heaven, he goes, do this and do that. And we almost get the sense that in some people's mind, God is like this huge benevolent, benevolent dictator. And in a sense, that's true, but he's really not into just dictating at people and, and uh, just ramming his will down everybody's throat. He actually wants to uh, work with his creative beings. All right. Um, 
this is interesting. The reason why this is so important, and, and I'm taking some time with this, is oftentimes you hear from people of faith, evangelicals and stuff, and you listen to the way they talk about doing God's will, and to them, everything is just do what God tells you to do. Just do what God tells you. You've heard this, right? Just, and you, do, you need to do what God tells you to do, but I mean, you get the impression that the walk of faith is really nothing about just hearing what God says, just do what he tells you to do. You don't use your own brain. You don't make decisions. In fact, people literally go out of their way not to make decisions. I don't want to make a decision until I hear God tell me what to do. Anybody heard this line of reasoning before, okay? This is fairly common even to this day. And I've always preached against this and said, look, that's not really the way it works. God has things that he's spoken that we need to do, but he doesn't always fill in all the details. And a lot of what we need to do, we need to step out in faith based on wisdom and knowledge that God says. Okay, for example, the Bible says that we need to be productive for the kingdom of God and someday we'll all give account for what we do. All right, but then you've got millions of Christians who sit on their butts, they don't do anything. And you say, well, why aren't you doing it? Well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me what to do. <laughs> what do you mean you're waiting for God? You see what I'm saying? They've got a twisted version of, of sovereignty that is really not biblical. And they're going to be in for one heck of a butt kicking on Judgment Day. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Jesus gave the parables over and over again about, you know, the, the, the king making his proclamation or the leader making his proclamation and then leaving and then coming back later to see how everybody was doing, right? Jesus gave parables along this line. This is an analogy of how God works. And the one about the, the talents. God gave one guy ten talents, one guy five talents, whatever the numbers were, one guy one. And he took off. Well, the other guys, they got busy right away. But the one was afraid. I didn't want to make any mistakes, you see. I didn't want to miss God. I, I, want to, I didn't want to get the master upset. I knew he was a, a stern man. So he, he, he sat on the talent, didn't do anything. And, and, and the parable, Jesus says that master rebuked that guy. Said, you wicked servant. You, you sat around and did nothing? Oh, you know, I, I think of people like that who just, oh, I'm afraid. I, want, I don't want to miss God. I don't want to do anything. You know, I want to wait for God to tell me what to do. So they do nothing. They sit in this world of nonsense thinking that God will always just dictate every little thing that you do. And I've seen it in varying degrees throughout my 40 years serving the Lord. You know, People who just at a, a normal level are kind of frozen because they're waiting for divine revelation on everything. To, to uh, major events in their lives. To people who literally, and I don't know of anybody around that here, but I've seen this. Lathan, you've probably seen this. Over there. People, they would pray, you know, what clothes to put on for the day. You know, and God, should I put on this pair of underwear or that pair of underwear? Or, you know, should I, I am not exaggerating and getting in the car and letting God lead you, you know. Should you turn to the right at the corner? Or wait, 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 wait up. I think I'm hearing left. And they'll turn to the left. And I mean, and, and this was, in many Pentecostal services, was highly praised at one time of being deeply spiritual and being led of the Lord. And God just telling everybody what to do every five seconds. Um, again, very, very skewed a vision of, of the way God does things. This is interesting. Here God, do you really think God needs advice? Let's start there. Do you really think God needs advice? Does anybody think God needs advice? I, I don't think so. But here God sits down and he says, all right, what do you guys think? What should we do here? I got a pretty good idea that God had a clue about what to do. But if there's anything that you see about God's character, he loves to engage his children. 
He loves to engage his beings. The thing that's the greatest blessing, and I think that brings the greatest glory of God, is not when we're a bunch of zombies all waiting around for God to tell us what to do next. But then when we step out in faith based on God's principles and wisdom and leading of the Holy Spirit, that we make successful decisions that advance the kingdom of God. Very different views of life. It might sound small, but it's a big difference between people who just sit around waiting for God to tell them what to do and others who step out in faith based on God's principles. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And then God, letting God just step in and direct them. For some reason, people think the greatest glory of God is when we just wait and tell God what to do. But stop and think how silly that is. What, what is more glory to me? My son was just up here playing guitar, helping to lead worship. Okay? What is more glory to me that as a 30-some-year-old man that I still have to call him in the morning, Phil, get out of bed. Okay, Phil, Phil, get out now, okay? Phil, put on your underwear. Brush your teeth, okay, now go, now get, get up there tonight, okay, sing a song, okay, now play this chord, okay, now, now play the next chord, okay, everybody just wait, we're working this through this, and okay, dad, just tell me what to do, tell me, okay, okay, da, da, okay, Phil, now you can put it down, and then walk off stage, okay, thanks, dad, thanks, dad, and he walks up, does this bring me glory? What picture of that even begins to make sense in applying that to God? I just wait for God to tell me what to do. And God tell me what to step and how to breathe. And oh, I got to wait for the next thing. This doesn't bring me glory. What brings me glory is that the man gets out of bed himself. And puts on his own underwear. And gets up and prepares for the service. And I don't have to think about anything. And I just walk out and I happen to find the music on the organ. I just start jamming along. This, when he succeeds as an adult man, without having to check with me every five seconds, to this brings glory to the father, to this father. Are you hearing me? Now, based what? On the way I trained him. Yes, in the beginning there was. Get out of bed. Good Lord, how long have you had these underwear on? Good heavens, boy, think it through. Okay, in the beginning, yes. But this dysfunctional picture that true Christianity is about just sitting and waiting for God to tell you what to do is nuts, in my opinion. All right, this does not bring glory to God. I don't think, I, I, I just think it's a, it's a skewed, dysfunctional vision. That we hear more of than any other thing. In fact, when I talk this way, it's kind of shocking to people. I mean, come on, people. This is not glory to God. God, what part of free will is exercised when God has to tell you everything to do? I got, I got free will, I won't, don't have to do it. But still, that's, that's, that's just not glorifying to God any more than any father would feel proud about having to instruct their kid on every step in life. We teach them, we instruct them, we build character on them, and then we watch them flourish and thrive. Today, I was at lunch with my son, and here he is giving me advice. You know, it was kind of cool. You know, this is kind of new for me. You know, he's finally stepping up, and and he's sitting down and saying, you know, Dad, we ought to do this about this. And this is, I really think you ought to go this direction. I'm I'm going, yeah, he's a man took a while but he's a man <laughs> it's good stuff so god even though god knows what's going on he he pulls in his creation he says what do you guys think we ought to do 
As if God was confused. Well, one guy, one spirit or whatever suggested this, and another that. Finally, spirit came forward and said, stood before the Lord, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll go and entice him. And the Lord says, and what, by, by what means? How are you going to pull this off? Again, as if God didn't know what he was going to say. Right? God knows everything. But he likes engaging his creation. He likes to hear from you, by the way. Which is a powerful... Do you know what prayer... you know why prayer is so powerful? Because prayer is you directing God's hand in the earth. Did you catch that? See, if you understand this extreme version of sovereignty, it will rob you of your motivation to pray. Some of you who struggle in prayer think, you know, why am I praying? Is it... Some of the reason that because you have wicked cold hearts is you, you don't understand. You've got this crazy vision of sovereignty so plastered in your head that God's just going to do whatever God's going to do. Right? But see, that's a, that's a twisted ver, uh, version of sovereignty. When you start understanding that God is literally looking at you and say, oh, we're going we're to need to change the world. We need to change your neighborhood. We need to change your cousin and your family. And God's saying, what do you think we ought to do? And you're praying and say, Father, I... I pray you do this. and God, open this opportunity. And God actually listens to you. That's why some people have more of God in their lives than other people. You think God likes the one person more and you take him off? I like this guy. This person irritates me. You know, that, that's not what he's thinking. Is that some people are more engaged with God in prayer. When you start understanding, man, I can move the hand of God. I can guide. I have a part. I have a say. In what happens in eternity. Some of you are looking at me like I dropped in from Mars. See? No, I'm telling you. This is so important. Because if you don't get this. If if the eyes don't click on here for you. The eyes don't click on. If the lights don't click on. The eyes can click. I don't know. If the eyes don't open. You'll struggle with this stuff. You won't realize how important you are. And how important your prayers are. Because God wants to change the world. Why doesn't God just show up and kick butt and take names and just do it? Seriously, if I was God, and you can be very grateful I am not. (laughs) If I was God, I'd just show and kick stuff over and just, you repent, you idiot, and you stop that and do that. And I'd just have fun knocking everybody upside the head. This would be my version of God, you know what I'm saying, just having fun. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he can do anything he wants? He wants to change the world. Why didn't he change the world? Because he's sitting around his throne. He's looking at his people and saying, okay, guys, what, what do you think? But we've been so twisted with this picture. Well, God, just tell everybody what to do. God's just going to tell everything. God's going to just direct everything sovereignly. Now, he does step forward at times. And you can read in the book of Acts. As they went out doing this and this. Every once in a while, God will step in and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Go this direction instead. Okay, they go to start, but then they start moving around again. They're not waiting every five seconds for God to tell them what to do. They were engaged. They realized who they were. Check it out. Look, look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, which is just before 2 Corinthians. <laughs> for those of you who are lost, it's page 1110 in my book. All right. Chapter 6, okay? Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul's writing to the Christians because they're suing each other. They're taking each other to the court and suing each other. 
He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? What are you doing? What are you doing taking Pastor Latham to court and suing him because his dog keeps pooping in your yard? What are you doing? You're going before a heathen judge because you can't get along with this person or that one. You're going to sue each other? We're Christians suing each other? And then he says this. Don't you know that the saints, talking about Christians, that's what a saint is, by the way. It's not some holy person up there. That the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, again, pointing to Christians, not some holy people. That's what a saint is. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent enough to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Do you understand what he's saying here? When the angels of God who sinned and rebelled against God come before judgment, we get the picture that just God's going to do it all, right? God's up there and, you know, zoom, bam, boom, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. When it comes to judging the fallen angels, do you know who's going to decide their fate and who's going to judge them? You! And you! And you! I don't know about Lathan. But the rest of you! I mean, when you think about I mean, that's... What? Us? Yes, you. Why? Because God loves to sit and look at his creation and say, What do you think? What do you think? In fact, Paul writes, he says, if we're going to judge the angel someday, if we are going to play such a role in eternity, you guys can't figure stuff out amongst yourself now? And it's a different thinking because we think, well, when we die, it'll be different. He's almost saying, look, because we know we're going to do that, we should be doing it now. We should be able to judge stuff now. Why? Because a few years, we're going to be judging angels. I don't think I can. I don't think I can. What's the problem? Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So anyway, he, he says, again, I could preach an hour just on this alone. He said, but what means? Well, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, said this prophet. And the Lord said, well, yeah, that'll work. Go and do it. So that's what was happening to these prophets. Again, what kind of prophets these were, I don't know. But this spirit, this angel from God came to these prophets and filled their heads with these prophecies and these ideas. They thought they were hearing from God. It's an angel who's messing with their heads and laughing his butt off. If angels have butts, I don't know. But but he's laughing and he's making these, you know, ooh, this is going to happen. And they're hearing these voices and stuff. And they're afraid. But it's, it's, it's just a plan to mess them up so that Ahab will go into battle and be killed. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, Micaiah says. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kanaha, Nana, whatever his name is, went up and slapped him in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went for me to speak to you? And Micah said, you'll find out on the day you go to hide in an upper room. Now, I don't know how this plays out, but this is not good for this boy. Someday he's going to find out what was going on. Then the king of Israel ordered, take him and send him back to Ammon with the ruler of the city and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water till I return safely. And the prophet says this, if you ever return safely, then the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words, all you people. Which he knew what he was saying. 
Because he's saying he'll never return. If he returns, then this is a false prophet. And what do you do to false prophets? You kill them. Okay, so he said, mark my words. He'll never come back. And then they go off into battle. And you'll have to tune in next week to find out the rest of the story. (laughs) Hallelujah. All right, so we're going to break for our time of questions and stuff. Good stuff here. Have fun at you campuses. And we're going to talk about stuff here. All right, questions and answers. (laughs) Where'd I get my shirt? (laughs) It's just a sweater. Nobody asked me my shirt last week. I was kind of bummed. It was a cool shirt. Anyway, all right, so what do you guys think about this? Any questions about stuff I was just talking about? Yes. I, I don't think, what do you do if she says, okay, you're not supposed to sue Christians, although Christians do it to each other all the time, I must say. Um, uh, what do you do with a non-Christian? There's, he doesn't say anything about that. Apparently, that would be fine. Although, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. On the one hand, you want to fight for what's right. But on the other hand, you always have to keep in the back of your mind at some level, uh, we are sheep for the slaughter. People will treat us badly. And, uh, you know, Paul, Paul even says in that thing, he says, well, why not just be wronged? Why not let him rip you off? Because we don't want to get ripped off, you know. Some of us can't afford to be ripped off. Uh, uh, we certainly we have attorneys, you know, for the church, you know, to protect our interests if that were need to be. I just think whenever you go, if, if if anything, it should be something I think you just do very carefully. You know, sometimes you just. But if you're dealing with a heathen who just doesn't get it, and to protect yourself, I, I think it's fine. You just got to kind of watch your heart and your attitude and stuff. And and if you have an opportunity to forgive and let it go and to let them know why, say, listen, you know. I know you really wronged me, but uh, I'm a Christian. I'm going to let it go. God bless you. You know, Sometimes you can't afford to do that. You know, If someone's cheating you out of your home, for example, and you and your husband have worked all your lives to build this home, and some idiot's coming into con man, so, you, know, you protect yourself. You, know, you just don't any more than you would let someone break into your house and, and, and kill your children. Well, you're not going to do that. You're going to take a bat and beat them to death. All right? <laughs> right? All right? Now, normally... Normally, are you as a Christian supposed to take a bat and beat people to death? Well, no. But there, there is a, a protective mode. You know what I'm saying? You know, someone breaking into my house, you kill them and let God figure it out later. You know, work it out later. <laughs> See what happens. So, I, I'm, I don't have a problem with the protection thing and stuff like that. But clearly, when it comes to Christians going at each other, that's where Paul said, this is, this is not good. Again, they do it all the time. I know of Christians who all the time go after other Christians for breach of whatever. I, I was talking to a, a ministry last night um, who uh, was doing a laugh your way to a better marriage thing. And, and these guys make a significant uh, commitment financially to bring me in. I ain't cheap. Okay, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars to have Marky's little face show up at your church to do these big conferences. Well, that's usually just big churches that do this. And uh, um, the uh, uh, one organization I was talking to last night, they were having a real hard time financially, and he called me and he said, listen, he says, 
you know, we're having a hard time. We need to make cuts. Gee, does that sound familiar? And uh, we had to make cuts, and, and I don't know if we can guarantee this. And I, I said, look, uh, because my contract says if you don't have X amount of people, X amount, then you got to pay me X amount of dollars. You know, I got all kinds of things in my contract. My contract says you got to pay me X amount of dollars if I show up and you don't have at least 200 people seated. You still have to pay me. I don't have to talk to them. Okay. Have I ever done it? No. Okay. But it's just to say, hey, work your butt off and get some people. I don't want to fly all the way to Timbuktu and I get there's eight people sitting there and wasting my time on talking to people's lives and stuff like that. So uh, it's a pretty strong contract. So he was kind of concerned last night and I said, I said, listen. If, if you can't get, because they have to have, I think, a minimum of 600 people. I said, so you get 150 people. What am I, I'm not going to sue you. And he was stunned. He said, really? I said, no, what am I going to do? I'm not going to sue you. He said, well, I know so-and-so who does seminars, and he sued that church. And this other guy, and they sued that church. And I think, I'm not going to do that. Good Lord. You know, I can't speak for those guys. What they do is their own business. I just... How do you do this? I go to a church and technically they didn't sell 600 tickets and instead they only sold 300 tickets. I'm going to sue them and go after. Of course I'm not going to do that. And uh, of course he just went, wow. And how sad is that? How sad is that that I come along and say, we're not going to sue you. Really? Wow. Good Lord. You know, we've lost our minds a little bit in the church. So it's fairly common that Christians do go after each other. And what Paul says, you shouldn't do that. What he does, he's not necessarily, however saying that you don't get justice because if you read the rest of it what he's saying is says find somebody in the church that how does it say that of of, uh, of little account or something does anybody remember how he says it first corinthians gotta jump back over there again so it's not he says you can still get justice he says uh of little account in the church yes appoint men of little account in the church so what he's saying is you know you don't necessarily go to the elders of the church or to Pastor Mark, or to Pastor Lathan, and all these people. Just talk to guys that you don't really know that much, you know. These guys, okay? You, you, and you. We're gonna bring, not that you're of little account, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, you don't have power in the church, you know what I'm saying? You know, most people don't even know your names, actually. I'm not sure what your name is. But anyway, so you, you get these people together, and now we bring the dispute in. And you let them decide. So it's almost like agreeing to binding arbitration. You know what I'm talking about? Where you go in and say, okay, we're going to fight this out, but we're going to agree ahead of time that whatever these guys decide, we're going to stick with. That's really what he's saying. He says, you just get regular people in the church, just regular people who haven't had a big buy into anything, and you bring your disputes to them. So if you were ever to go, let's say, my brother here uh, ripped you off, and you're mad about it, you know, the biblical thing isn't just for me to say, well, just let it go, necessarily. What I should do is get some guys together and say, okay, binding arbitration, we're going to get together, and you guys agree, whatever they decide, and you make your case to them. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, out of respect. And then after you make your case, you make your case, they make the call. And she'll say, well, our ruling is, you owe them a thousand bucks. All right? <laughs> well, then, well, then you should do it. And what he's saying is we should be able to do that because we're going to be judging angels in just a few years. 
We should be more than capable of dealing with our own issues in that sense. So uh, what he's saying, what you don't do is you don't want to take this to heathens and unbelievers and take it into public places of dispute. You know, even if I was to have an argument with a church over something, the best thing to do would find someone we both agree with and have them arbitrate it. But in my case, I, I just wouldn't even do it. I'm not going to go there. So I have a long answer, but it's kind of a, a good question, I think. For anyone else? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's good. That's good. I mean, at the end of the day, even Paul in that, uh, I think a couple of verses later says, look, at the end of the day, why not rather be wronged? Why not just take it? You know, we, we can handle it. God is watching out for us. So mercy triumphs over judgment. I had some hands right here. Yes, sir. Oh yeah, very. There, there's some heavy stuff in your head. There's other stuff. Remember when uh, uh, Samuel, God told Samuel to go anoint David as the next king. Remember we talked about this. And Samuel says, I ain't going to go. Saul's going to kill me if he finds out. And what does God say to him? He says, oh, just tell him you're going to sacrifice. Hello? My mama calls that a white lie. You know what I'm saying? So... Obviously, it's not a white lie. It's not intended to deceive. On the other hand, I don't think God views things that you need to tell the devil everything you're doing and be over, totally open. You know, and it's a, it's a point of discussion that Christians argue over. For example, uh, I remember at times we were smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain as a young man. A lot of organizations, to this day, a lot of organizations smuggle Bibles into stuff. And uh, they would say, well, you're breaking the law. Well, yeah. Well, is that a sin? I don't think so. You know, but those Christians who would argue with that, they would think, you know, because when we came to the border and they said, do you have anything to declare? We went, nope. I ain't declaring nothing. I got nothing to say about nothing. Everything's good, you know? And, um, you know, yeah, I'm going to say, well, yeah, actually, we got a bunch of Bibles smuggled in the middle of the bus here and we just, we didn't want to tell you, but since you asked, you know, I don't think we're obligated because when you look at scriptures like this, I don't, I don't think you're obligated to just give your hand to the devil. But it's a point, it's a very interesting uh, point that you bring out and, and one that causes some wrestling theologically with people. God is not a liar. Okay, we know that. But how you get around some of these other things is, is kind of funny. How you explain it. But smarter people than me have wrestled with this. Yo!
Yeah, no, that sounds very, they, they were all very different. Some of them were seemingly lunar and all get out. And uh, who, who was the prophet that, as his form of prophecy, he had to shave half his head and, and lay on one side? Does anybody remember that? Burt Reynolds did that. <laughs> now, I don't think that's the guy I'm thinking of. <laughs> who, who was it? Jeremiah. I knew it. That's why I was looking back there waiting for the answer. Oh, your husband had it. <laughs> Jeremiah. Yeah, very bizarre. And didn't God tell him to cook his food with his own dung? Yeah. And then, and then he said, oh, God, that really grosses me out. Can I use cow dung? And God said, okay. So, so what was the point of cooking your food with your own poop? You know, I'm just very bizarre. I mean, bizarre prophets, bizarre ways of thinking. God asking people to do strange things. God telling the one prophet to go marry a prostitute. You know, uh, just God has always, every one of these prophets really had their own stamp on them. And uh, uh, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about Elijah some when we get to it next week, when, when Elijah takes off. Uh, because... Remember, John the Baptist was coming in what? The spirit and the power of Elijah. Was there anything that John the Baptist did that was remotely close to what Elijah did? Think about that. So we get to it next week. But it's, it's a, when, when he says, when the Bible says spirit and the prophet of Elijah, we would have all thought of something different than what actually turned out to be. Again, we're jumping ahead, we're cheating, but uh, cool stuff. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yes. What is fascinating? She's talking about when you read the book of Job, you'll read the story about the angels of God coming before God and then Satan comes along. Well, I thought Satan got kicked out of heaven. Well, he did. He's been totally humiliated. But yet he still shows up and has a degree of free reign. It's, uh, it's almost like a military uh, uh, respect shown to a fallen general. You know, when they surrender, he's allowed to maintain his weapon and his sword. And he's treated with a different degree of respect than his soldiers. Even though he was an enemy, a fallen enemy, uh, uh, you know what's really interesting about that is because later in Jude, um, the Bible says, be careful not to be disrespectful to authority, even talking about how when Satan or when God's angels rebuke Satan, when, when Michael the archangel rebuked Satan, he didn't do anything disparaging to him. He still showed him respect. They still show the devil respect, even though they said the Lord rebuke you, you know, uh, Again, hard for us to relate to, especially in Western culture where we don't respect anybody, but uh, especially pastors. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. But uh, it's uh, real interesting. We'll probably talk about it when we get to that. What was that all about? You know, it's, uh, you know, it's hard. The Old Testament is kind of hard to get a little bit. That's the beauty when Jesus comes and he starts making things more clear. 
and we get a clearer sense in the New Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, there's things portrayed in ways that at times it's very, very confusing. Just like my brother here said about the, uh, you know, you're, you're deceiving. The, you know what I'm saying? There's this stuff. I mean, exactly how much of this is clearly laid out in, an act, you know, in, in a way that we can grasp, it's hard to tell. All I know is the Old Testament. And we knew this. I warned you going into it when we saw the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. You just go, whoa, what does this mean? Okay, so you just got to... You've got to take everything as much as you can in the light of the New Testament truth that we understand. and Whatever. Yes, sir? Can, can we drop the lights a little bit? I feel like I'm in a closet here. <laughs> My thoughts and experience on seeking the counsel of the Lord? Ah. Uh, interesting. I, I think that you should ask God's wisdom and guidance... Uh, certainly with major decisions, you know, uh, my concern is that as, as I acted out here, I think we've overdone it with we have to get a divine revelation from God before we do anything. Let me give you an example. Here's, here's a, a pretend story. Okay, Jesus told his disciples to go two by two out and to cast out devils and to preach the gospel and heal the sick. And remember, you know, and if the city didn't re- receive you, kick the dust of your shoes off and go on, right? That was, that, was, that was his demand, his command. Well, they went out and they went. And they did what Jesus told them to do. But they had to make decisions all the way along the way. What city are they supposed to go? Who are they going to pray for? Now, if, if, if the disciples would have done the way I think a lot of evangelicals think today about this divine, heavy sovereign, you've got to work for God for do anything. This is how it would have went, assuming they had cell phones back then. Okay? So... Peter goes off, and him and John are going, and they get to the top of the hill, because Jesus said to go preach the gospel all over the place, and uh, they get to the top of the hill, and, and there's a road, Ro- road goes to the left, and one goes to the right, and Peter says, whoa, whoa wait a minute, John, he says, and John says, what's the problem, he says, well, we've we got to make a decision here, well, let's pick one, no, 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 no. I, hold on, we're going to fall, yeah, hello, Jesus, yeah, it's Peter, hey, listen, uh, i got a road here, and one goes to the left, one goes to the right, uh, what, what should I do? Just, just pick one. Okay, okay. all right, thanks. I, I, I don't want to make a mistake. Okay, so he picks one, he goes to the right, and they go, and he comes, and now there's three cities down there. And he goes, whoa, wait a minute, what city should we go to? Well, hold it, hold it, listen. Hello, Jesus? Yeah, Peter. Hey, look, I, I got three cities here, and, and I don't want to go to the wrong city. Which one should I go to? Uh, you don't care. Just, just, just pick one. Okay, okay. So he goes, all right, well, let's pick this one. So he comes in the city, and now he's got a bunch of sick people. And there's a guy with a broken leg, a guy with a hurt tooth, and a guy with a cold. Who do we pray for first? Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hello, hello Jesus. Yeah, look, it's, it's Peter. Yeah, sorry to bother you, but uh, I don't want to make a mistake here. There's, there's a, I got a broken leg, I got a tooth, I got a... Who do I pray for first? Uh, you don't care. Uh, just, just pick one. Oh, okay, okay. All right, well, let's, let's pray for this guy first. Okay, boom, 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 boom. And, and now we got three people possessed of the devil. What should we do? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hello? He- Hello, operator? Yeah, I'm looking for Jesus. What do you mean he, he disconnected his phone? Okay. okay, now, are you getting a picture here a little bit? He just said go. He was fairly specific. Go preach the gospel, proclaim the good news, heal the sick, cast out devils, just go! 
But people today, they're so, well, well, who do I go to first? And what should I do first? And I don't know. I better not do anything because I don't want to make them make wrong, wrong mistake. This is what is frozen so much of Christianity with this idea of extreme sovereignty. Now, but it comes to a good question. Well, then what do you pray for? I think, you know, if you, if you haven't heard from God specifically one way or the other, especially with major decisions, then you pray. And you ask from God. You go to get wisdom. The Bible says there's safety in the, in the multitude of counselors. That kind of stuff. But when God has told you to do something, you should go do it. Okay? Um, the Bible's pretty clear that we should be involved in the kingdom of God, right? We should love one another. We should serve one another. In the church, we should be connected with one another. Well, that means get involved for crying out loud. But a lot of people haven't gotten involved in church. Why? Because they're waiting for God to tell them what to do. Well, I think those are the people who are going to be in trouble. Because God did tell you. You don't need to inquire of the Lord when God's already told you what to do. That's what I'm saying. How do you, well, the Bible's clear. The Bible, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, generally, if you get it from the... <laughs> she said, if I started hearing voices, they're going to lock me up. Okay. No, really, we get this from the scriptures. The Bible tells us how to live. It tells us what we should do. It should tell us how to work out our lives, you know. It tells us how to get along with each other. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on Sunday about, uh, in the church, based on the gifts that you have. You know, God, should, you should use your gifts according to the gifts that God has given you. That's how you know. We follow the advice of the scriptures. People who are just constantly sitting around listening, waiting for, ooh, come in Tokyo, come in Tokyo, you know, waiting for sounds and stuff. Yeah, and, and, and sadly, we got a lot of people who literally are sitting around waiting for voices to tell them what to do. That was Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts. Yeah, and that was kind of a bad rap. That's not exactly how it went down. That was what the, 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 the secular media said. You know, God was going to kill him if he didn't do. Uh, what, what he was saying was he felt he was praying, again, directing the hand of God like we were talking about. God, we need to see this happen. And he felt like God had put it on his heart to raise this money. He didn't want to raise the money. And he felt like God said to him, said, well, look, if you're, not gonna, if you're just going to give up, you're not going to do, I've got more work for you to do. Then you might as well just come home, die and come home. So he's just sharing that story. For example, you know, if, if, if God says that to me, you know, I'm 75 years of age and God says, Mark, I want you to do this new thing. I want you to build a new building, uh, you know, under the church. I'm going, oh, I don't want to build a new building. I mean, I want to just slow down and retire. You know what I'm saying? And God said, well, look, if you're not going to do what I'm calling you to do, well, then just come home. You know what I'm saying? So the world took that, that he said, God told me to raise money or he's going to kill me. That's not what he said. Okay, so that was kind of an unfair rap on him. All right, I got one more minute. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, that's part of the prayer thing. She says, is it okay to pray to God open and close doors? Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Instead of just waiting for God to tell you what to do, you're out there and you say, well, Father, open this door and, and close this door. And, and, you know, I've always used the, the, the analogy that how God always leads me opening, closing doors. You know, that uh, when I boom and I'm trying to keep shut, hitting my head up against the wall, I think, duh, let's go this way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Even though I've prayed for him to open the door, and he's not opened the door, just it's got to be a clear direction. Um, most of my life, actually, that's how God directs me. People say, you know, I, I'm so glad God spoke to you to do such and such, and I never heard anything. What I did is I ran into the doors a bunch of times. You know what I'm saying? You go this way, smash. 
And you go this way, smash. And you go this way, smash. That's how I lost the hair. That's <laughs> kick her out of the church. You Jezebel. <laughs> but I mean, if, if you're going different and and the, and you had you try this way and it doesn't work, and you go this way and it doesn't work, and you go this way and it doesn't work, which way do you think I should go next? This way. And now I see God is delighted, and you say, "Wow, I'm so glad God spoke to you to go up the aisle." Well, it doesn't exactly happen that way. It was smash, smash, smash. I got only one left. So I go this direction. Way over there. Yes, sir. Good. So it's the mom? What's her name? It's Adam's mom. Here's a man who says he believes in prayer. He believes in what I saying. He wants us all to pray. Let's go ahead and have the ushers come down. We'll stand up and uh, let's pray together as we get ready to take the offering. And let's agree together for Adam's mom. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness. We thank you, God, that we can come to you. And... Stand before you with joyful hearts, knowing that we play a part in your kingdom and that you desire this. And Lord, we pray right now for Adam's mom in the situation she's going through. We ask you to intervene. We ask you to be real and powerful. God, continue to reveal yourself uh, to Adam and these men uh, as you answer prayers in their lives. And as as God, you be very, very real. Uh, We just pray for a miracle and a turning around in that situation. In Jesus' name, we thank you that you are a faithful, wonderful God. And uh, thank you, Lord, for this time of, of being, uh, being able to get together as a family and opening your word and, and bantering around questions and stuff. We don't have all the answers, Lord, but you, we're glad we know who does, and that's you. And uh, we pray you continue to help us to grow from your word. And we now uh, joyfully, uh, joyfully give into your kingdom. We pray that you'll bless these offerings and use them for the advancement of your kingdom in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have to run.